Bonnie is back with me today, and we are responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 647. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A few times a year, we set aside our normal format of bringing in a guest expert and respond to the questions that have come in from you. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And joining me for this conversation, as always, is Bonnie Stoviak. Bonnie, hello. Hey, Dave, we've got some really good, good, thought-provoking questions today. Just like always, I'm excited to engage. We do, and we both have our reading-slash-computer glasses on, so we are ready to take on the world. I went from one pair of glasses 30 days ago, Bonnie, to now three pairs of glasses. I've got the reading glasses upstairs, I've got the computer glasses for the computer, and then I've got the regular glasses, and apparently this is the reality that we all emerge into at this stage of life. Mm-hmm. I'm down to two. So I have a progressive glasses where I can see far away. I can see at the computer and I can read. It gets a little blurry when I go downstairs, but other than that, I'm good. And then I have the reading glasses that I, I try to buy as inexpensive as one like as I can because most of my reading happens laying on my side getting ready to sleep. <laughs> there, there's probably a leadership analogy here somewhere if I thought this through more, but it is it is amazing how the right glasses, whoo, boy. I see things I have not seen for several years. Let's just put it that way. And all the better to be able to read these questions. So let's jump right in. Our first question here is from Lisa, who writes, I'm wondering if you have an episode on holding others accountable when you do not have positional authority. I'm a program and project manager, and this is often my world. I have mid-level and executive-level stakeholders that I guide to make decisions, and then I have to track progress. Depending on the relationship, it can be intimidating. I appreciate any tips you might have. I'm always adjusting, practicing active listening, and starting tracking my interactions as post-evaluation steps. It's exhausting. Indeed, it can be. Bonnie, what do you think? Thank you so much for the question, Lisa. I can feel such empathy for you. I'd like to share about, about three weeks ago, someone at our organization facilitated a session on Patrick Lencioni's Working Genius. Oh, yeah. And we were asked to read the book prior and to take the assessment. And it was fascinating. They had all these posters up and colleagues and myself were invited to guess what each other's uh, working genius was. And part of the part of the instrument has to do with one's altitude. So there would be some people whose working genius would be right at that 30,000 foot altitude, and then some that are extremely strong and energized by the things right on the runway. And then, of course, everything in between those two things. And one thing that can commonly come up is people who are working in those executive level positions, not always, but sometimes maybe at that 30,000, 20,000 foot view and may have challenges with 
following up on getting energized by the things that need to happen to really get that plane to take off. I, I think my analogy is going to break down here at some point. Dave, but, <laughs> Sounds good to me so far. But the first thing I think is to recognize that for you to be able to hold people accountable for some of the steps that it's going to take to launch a new product, to reposition things in your organization, those altitude differences in what energizes us sometimes can be the root of things. And then, of course, Lisa, you've compounded those challenges by saying, I don't have any authority over this person to get them to take the actions that need to happen to bring about success. So first of all, I would recommend starting with why. As you're having these these conversations with these individuals, if we're able to tap into what it is that intrinsically and sometimes extrinsically motivates others, that's going to allow us to be able to speak the language as we're continuing to influence them a little bit more effectively. So we want to be thinking about as they're at that potentially, again, not all executives, but potentially they're at that 30,000 ele- foot elevation, that 20,000. What is it that truly is going to motivate them to then find themselves whatever amount of energy it takes to get those steps taken care of? One thing that can be helpful is to make the work visible. And by that, is it some type of a timeline? Is it some type of a document, a dashboard of some kind? You want to be careful with this because you don't want this to be about controlling another person. You do want there to be empathy in terms of how busy everyone is, you know, that that kind of a thing. You want, you want to be very careful to, to not necessarily have someone's name attached to it. But if people can see those checkboxes and they have an appreciation, a shared understanding for what we're trying to accomplish here, that can sometimes be helpful. A little tiny bit of, of public view of what's holding back this product launch, again, if done in a respectful and an empathetic way, can sometimes be helpful. I love everything you said, Bonnie. And for those who would like to explore more about the working genius model, Pat and I talked about it on an episode not that long ago. And Bonnie, we've heard from so many people who are listeners who've used that model, and it's been really helpful. Yes to everything you said. Lisa, I think the only thing I would add is maybe just one mindset thing and one hygiene thing. So the hygiene thing would just be good meeting practices. So to echo what Bonnie mentioned, I mean, when you're when it's influenced without authority, you're in a, sometimes an awkward place of like not wanting, obviously, we don't want to control people anytime, but especially when it's a peer or it's a customer or a stakeholder, um, being really conscious of that. And I think good meeting management is one way to guard against that of having making sure action items are coming out of conversations to make sure that's documented techo what bonnie said to make sure you have a purpose for what conversations are what are we trying to do with this conversation are we brainstorming are we generating ideas are we making decisions is this informational uh mamie canfer stewart joined me on an episode a while back on effective meeting practices i think that would be a helpful thing to review just to make sure that you've got all those down and then the final piece is a mindset piece One of the things I always loved from Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was the direction from him of to always appeal to the nobler motive. And this is helpful when you get into the weeds on something and one person's not doing something that the other person thinks they should be doing, is to come back to the big picture when something's not working, is to be able to say something like, hey, 
we all want this to move forward. We all want to hit this deadline for this particular stakeholder or customer. And so let's spend our time today looking at a couple of things that aren't quite working on this and figure out the big picture. Being able to, in a conversation with a bunch of stakeholders, especially where it's influence, to be able to bring everyone back to the big picture and state that at the beginning of a conversation or an interaction, I think just helps set the it just sets the tone for a conversation of, hey, we all want this to move forward. We're all working on this together. We're all on the same team. Yes, we need to talk about some of the tactical stuff, but that mindset, just going into that conversation and espousing that, I've seen that work so well in so many situations. And then the tactical stuff becomes a little bit easier to help move that forward a bit. So Lisa, I hope that helps in some way. And we'll put a few links to some of those past conversations that'll be helpful if you want to dive in a bit further. Okay, Dave, our next question is from John. John asks, how do you deal with a person with a narcissistic personality disorder or who exhibits high levels of narcissistic tendencies in the workplace? It's concerning to see more and more individuals exhibit these traits, which can harm the workplace environment and overall well-being. It's essential to address this issue and find ways to help those who struggle in these environments. I would appreciate seeing what Bonnie and your opinion are on this matter. Oh, John, thanks for the question. Bonnie, we have run into a few narcissists over the years, haven't we? Um, It is a challenge. It is certainly a challenge in executive roles in organizations. Narcissists tend to show up there just like everywhere else. In fact, I've seen research and articles and anecdotes indicating that maybe even a bit more compared to the the broader population. So it is something that if you haven't run into yet in your career, you are going to. Three thoughts that I have on this, and I'm sure Bonnie will have a few thoughts too. First of all, this and this is really, really hard, but getting back to mindset, is if you're dealing with a narcissist and they're making your life miserable, it's not about you. And I know that that's really hard to process when you're in the middle of dealing with someone who is just shows up in the world in this way for whatever reason. Is It feels personal. It feels so difficult to work with someone, especially if that person ends up being your manager. And it's almost never about you. It's just how they show up in the world. It's how they interact with so many people. And one of the things that I often find myself having a conversation with when we're having a talk with one of our members or listeners about dealing with a narcissist is we we talk about, you know, is this kind of thing happening just with you? Or are you seeing evidence of this happening with your peers and other colleagues? And almost always when we're having a conversation about someone who's exhibiting narcissistic tendencies— we end up finding out pretty quickly, uh, no, it's everyone. Like It's all my peers are running into this. Everyone else in the organization runs into this. We're all seeing this. And I, I think that's pretty common, and it's not about you, and that doesn't make the situation better, but I think that it helps you sometimes to approach it from a mindset standpoint. Second thought is don't fight a narcissist. Don't battle with them, especially not in a public forum. Don't humiliate them. I mean, we should never do that with anyone, but especially with a narcissist, you will lose. They will take you down. That's just the nature of the way narcissists tend to show up in the workplace. So I'd be really even more cautious to make sure that if you do need to have 
a difficult conversation with a narcissist or something isn't working, I would approach that with care. I would approach that with respect. I would think about what do you want to have to be the outcome of that conversation. And I would probably start by doing that privately with them one-on-one. So just to be really cautious of that. Narcissists, in my experience, tend to be more sensitive to that than the average person. And then the thing that I, I would also try is, and I've seen this work really well in a lot of situations, is to throw them a bone once in a while. One of the things that really is hard is when someone is showing up in a narcissistic way is to feel like you want to do anything nice for them. (laughs) I'm not sure of a better way to say that. Like when someone is showing up in that way and it seems like it's always about them, it is really hard to affirm them in any way. And yet I have seen a number of people in my career and me to when you can genuinely do it, so you're not doing it. You're not doing it just to do it. You're doing it genuinely. When you find something that they've done well, or you think that they have done to contribute to the organization, or you see them make a good decision, or you see them do something positive, is to affirm that. And even better if you can do that in a public forum. Uh, Narcissists tend to really like that. And I find that that sometimes takes off the edge of some of the more difficult situations. If you can find a way to do that in a genuine and authentic way when the situation presents itself where the person you're you're working with you know does something that really you think is a good and positive thing for you for them or for the organization so i think if you start there that might be a helpful beginning point for how you frame this situation something that i try to be very disciplined about is not thinking in dichotomous ways and i think that can be helpful when we're talking about narcissism this really is a continuum On one end of it, we do have a clinical diagnosis, narcissistic personality disorder, which is is classified as a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, a need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. And Dave really touched on all of those themes. Keep in mind, though, this is a continuum. And in fact, all of us have certain levels of narcissism. Dave, I've been feeling it lately. I don't think I've admitted this to you, but I'm sure this won't surprise you that much. But our household has come down with COVID for the first time in all of these years. Yes, indeedy. Yes, indeedy. We thought one member of our household was going to get to skip it. But no, all four of us just spanning across way too many weeks that for me to think about. And as each one of us has gone down for various reasons and at various days and weeks, I will admit, Dave, the first thing I'm thinking about, okay, how does this affect my week? And that that's, I see a little bit of narcissism in myself. Narcissism isn't always bad. Some of it, in fact, can be healthy. Some levels of narcissism can help us have resilience. It can help us have confidence and be able to break through barriers. Now, of course, with anything good, when the volume gets turned up too high, that's where narcissism can really become a problem. And there are two things that Dave touched on in terms of narcissism. One is just a profound sense of insecurity. And I think the in terms of saying things that are true when you can throw them a bone, a good idea, not a great idea when it's not true, because I feel almost they can sniff out that lack of authenticity. Another really big theme with narcissists is issues around boundaries. So we do have to get good at setting and maintaining boundaries, because otherwise they can somewhat uh, attempt to take over lots of parts of our lives and just not have a good way of navigating healthy human adult boundaries. Dave talked about that it isn't our job 
to fix these people. So we, we can't control other people. We can't fix other people. That That's not going to be a great use of our time and energy. You know, it is a great use of our time and energy, managing our own responses, managing our own emotions and reactions to them, and managing our own energy levels. I have found in throughout my career, I have I have worked with two individuals who with my armchair psychologist, which is to say, I'm not a trained psychologist, but I would suspect probably had that could have easily had that classification as narcissistic personality disorder. I have learned in my career, I don't I need to back away. I need I need to attempt to have positions and be in environments where I'm not needing to work up too close with people with that really, really pervasive grandiosity. The classic folk tale that comes up is the emperor has no clothes. And I will tell you, I do not do a great job of telling the emperor they have no clothes or saying no, that they have not. clothes and when I, they don't. I, I love that about you. <laughs> yes, yes. So I think knowing, but but at the same time, we're all going to in our career, Dave, you talked about it becoming potentially an increasing thing in the workplace. What can I control? My responses, my reactions to my own emotions, having that emotional intelligence and really deciding where do I want to spend my energy? And I think when we are around people with higher degrees of narcissism, then we might really appreciate it. We get a, we get that time to really show that self-discipline because there are so many places to find joy out there. This is just not one of them. Thank you, John, for the question. All right, let's uh, move on to the next question from Patrick. Uh, Patrick Bonnie is one of our Academy alums, and he was talking with Tom Henschel and I over email about navigating a conflict between two of his employees. Tom had mentioned in one of his past episodes of The Look and Sound of Leadership that a manager might mediate a conflict between two employees or might not. And so Patrick emailed us and said, how do I know if it's appropriate or productive to have them meet with me as the referee? I would love for them to be able to talk to each other, but I don't want to make things worse. Or should I encourage them to work out the problem on their own? This definitely comes up uh, regularly, Bonnie, when we're talking about conflict and navigating in the workplace. Uh, What do you think when you think about this question? I was pleased that as I read your question, Patrick, I don't run into this a lot because on the strengths finder, harmony is really toward the bottom for me. It's a second from the bottom when I look at the list of strengths. So moving in and out of conflict is something that I do pretty regularly with peers, with the person that I report to, as well as people who report to me. And that's even saying I do have many team members who have harmony right up there. But there are ways in which to help people with high harmony still be able to bring their perspectives and feel confident in expressing them. So I guess on one hand, I was sort of pleased that we we do we tend to have uh, been able to build up this ability to do what Brene Brown calls rumbling this is the idea of like good healthy conflict in organizations you've already brought up one real dynamic that is important to bring into this conversation and that is the power dynamics because these people either report to you or it sounds like maybe uh, not at the same level that you are in the organization, that's going to be difficult to have them be able to build their own ability to resolve their own conflict. I definitely think when it's an issue of 
someone's performance, if the work just isn't getting done, this conflict that's that's burgeoning is causing that to happen, then we definitely need to pay attention. And then we also need to consider who else may be impacted. Our clients impacted potentially by this, other stakeholders. So those are the three things that I'm thinking about. Does it does it affect performance? Who else might be impacted? And then the ways in which power dynamics may come up. And by that, I mean, if you're perceived as, quote unquote, higher in the org chart, there could be some sense of threat or coercion or fear. And that's not going to really open up the valves to be able to have that healthy conflict happen. I was going to mention, Dave, that one other reason why I feel like I don't run into this as often is that the person that I report to who really is an expert at building teams, Ryan Hartwig, he has very clearly helped us to identify what our values are. So these would be my peers And then he would be the person that I report to. And at the top of all of our agendas is what is the purpose of our team? And I look at it, I I will literally read it almost every single meeting, just I I tend to arrive places early, and it centers me and and it gives me a sense of roots and grounding. Why are we here? Why do we exist? And of course, the values, well, how are we going to show up? What are our commitments to one another? And so when it's articulated in a statement as far as an organization's or a team's values, and we really believe those things, and we really show constant examples of us living up to those, and then calling ourselves when we don't, because we all are going to fail. Human beings are messy and complicated beings. And so it, 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 it makes it a little bit less personal, because these are the things we're espousing are important to us, the reason we exist and the ways in which we will behave and and regard each other, then it becomes us against the values versus us against each other. And it's just a much less personal win-lose kind of thing. One other thing that struck me in your comments, which I found very rich, Patrick, was your use of the word referee. And that to me, when we talk, I I certainly don't mean to be nitpicking on your words, but people who referee games, there are winners and there are losers. And we need to be careful whenever we do decide to attempt to help mediate conflict is that we aren't picking teams, we're not keeping score, and the score is really living up to doing what we say we're going to do, which part of that is being people of integrity, living up to our values and working according to the purpose of our organization and or the team that we are a part of. I love you bringing this back to the big picture, Bonnie, and thinking about like us against each us against the values versus us against each other. I think that's just a wonderful distinction and that Ryan has that on your team and that you all focus on that. I think is so cool. And I was thinking about the big picture here too, Patrick. I think the tactical question you're asking, which is, do I literally sit down with both of them in a room or do I sit down with them separately? I think becomes clearer when the big picture is clearer. So what are the values the team holds? Where are you trying to go? And to Bonnie's point, if it's impacting performance, then yeah, I think as a manager, you not only want to, but probably need to address something and to set the expectation that we need to resolve this in a way that's satisfactory, not that people need to be best friends. We've all worked with people we don't like or don't care for, right? But we need to 
we need to resolve this in such a way that we are not impacting productivity for the organization. And I think coming back to those values is key. And if they're not there, there's an opportunity to perhaps as a larger team be having those conversations and establish those. And then you're able to come back to something that really does line up with that. Bonnie, did you ever see the movie, what was it called? As Good As It Gets? Oh, yes, with, with Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson and um, Helen I, Hunt. Helen Hunt, yeah. I think about that with this too, Patrick, of like, sometimes like as good as it gets is good enough. You know, we've all worked with people we don't especially like, they aren't our favorite people. I think what you want to what you want to aim for here is how do you get it as good as possible given the values and expectations in the organization and you're not trying to set an expectation as a manager that people be best friends and love working together everyone all the time of course not and i love the language michael bungay stanier uses in his newest book too on best possible relationship how do we do the best possible work we can do given the dynamics and i think that that would be a wonderful starting point too and you might go back to episode 635 and just look at the framework. Ideally, that's done before the conflict happens. But I think that framework is also helpful if conflict has emerged that you might say to one or both parties, hey, here's a framework for the best possible relationship. This might be a starting point if you decide that you're going to have a conversation. And then if you do sit down and ultimately have that conversation as sort of that triad of like, okay, I'm here maybe doing a little bit of mediation between two people who need that because that's helpful and they're not, they're not demonstrating through their language or behaviors that they're able to do that on their own, which is would for me be an indicator of where I may step in as a manager. Um, I really love the framework from Susan Gerke that she talked about in episode 263, which is the AIM frame. And it's essentially three questions that anytime you're mediating a conflict or you're in the room as the more, may I say, objective party, that you might start with. And the three questions are, what's happened? Secondly, what's the goal? And then third, what are the options to move forward? And that gets back to what I mentioned earlier is as manager in this situation, you want to move this forward. You want to get to as good as it gets. You want to resolve the performance issues that are happening. And if you use that framework, that might be a helpful place for you to begin if you do end up in a conversation with both of them. So hope that helps, Patrick, on maybe giving you a few things you might start with and, uh, and try next. All right. Our next and final question comes from Priya. Hi, Bonnie. I really enjoyed listening to your recent podcast with Dave on Coaching for Leaders. One question that really resonated with me was on performance management. I struggle with the fact that most employers or institutions focus on underperformers. They spend less time on helping their high performers grow and stay motivated. I wonder if you have any guidance for me to continue to be productive with this prevailing mindset and if and how to share this feedback with my leadership. Priya, thank you so much for this question. You are certainly not the first person to ask this. So yes, on your first question for ideas, no on your second question on sharing feedback with leadership. At least I wouldn't start there. So let me begin with the first part. Yes, this is a tendency for all of us in organizations to and in our lives to find the thing that isn't working. The classic example is a child brings home a report card and it's got four A's on it and one C. 
where does the attention tend to go for most parents and most kids and most teachers? It goes to the the thing that is the underperformance piece. So I think we should all acknowledge that natural tendency in ourselves, and that's why it tends to show up in our organizations. Uh, I, the book that I read years ago that changed my mind on this and many other people who've read this book is The Work from Gallup, First Break All the Rules. Uh, it's a fabulous book. It's a bit dated now just from context, but I think it's worth going back to for the message that Gallup has been telling us for years and the research continues to show, which is the best managers spend the most time and energy with their best people, their top performers. A again and again and again, the research shows this. And our tendency a lot of the time, especially for new managers, is we have someone who's underperforming and we we address that as we should and we put our time and energy there, but we do it at the we do it so much that we end up taking our time and attention away from our top performers. I've done it many times, especially early on in my career. And we end up not making a lot of times a lot of progress with the situation where we're trying to change the underperformance. And we end up missing out on so many opportunities to be supporting the top performers in our organization. And so first and foremost, Priya, is to know that shifting how you show up in your work as a leader to be able to focus on top performers and to be investing as much and probably more time there than you are with the folks who are not performing well, I think is a really important reminder for all of us. And I think Gallup's message for that is really key for all of us. A little more recent is the work of Ruth Gotian. Her book, The Success Factor, I think is fabulous. It's a book about high performers, how they show up, what they do and don't do, how they approach their work. And in particular, there's a chapter in the book about leading high performers. I think that's a wonderful place to start. We talked about a bunch of the lessons on, on it for an episode 567. So if you begin there, I think that'll give you a lot of tactics and tools to be thinking about, okay, if I find myself as a leader focusing on the underperformers, how can I start to shift to show up in a way that's really healthy and encouraging and motivating for the top performers in my organization? And I'd really encourage you to start there, Priya, you yourself as a manager, I would not spend a lot of time trying to change the rest of the organization. One, because it's super hard if that's the culture of your organization that we focus only on underperformers and that's who gets the time and energy. That's a really hard dynamic to change. It's not likely any single person is going to change that dynamic on their own. But when someone is going to change that dynamic, the way that they're going to do it is by being an example of the opposite. So rather than spending time thinking about how you might give feedback up and change the culture of the organization, I would, you yourself as a manager, think about where can I put more of the time and attention on high performers, making sure they're doing great, retaining them, yes, still addressing underperformance when it's there in your organization, of course, but this very much being a both and. And when people come to you and say, hey, wow, you're doing great. The retention's great. Your high performers are doing wonderfully. What are you doing? Then that's the opportunity to have that conversation of, oh, here's what here's the framework I'm using. Here's the mindset I'm using in managing the team. And whether the larger organization comes along with you or not, you yourself are showing up in a way that is helping the team to continue to grow and to serve performers at every level in your organization consistently.
If our conversation about these questions was helpful to you today, a few related episodes that might help you dive in a bit further on some of the details. One of them's episode 164, How to Handle a Boss Who's a Jerk. Tom Henschel was my guest on that episode. He's the host of the Look and Sound of Leadership podcast, a dear friend, has been on the show many times over the years. Tom and I talked about what do you do when you're in that situation? And I hope that's not you, but if it is you, how do you handle it? And we talked about it big picture. We do talk a bit about narcissists in that conversation, but we also talk about many other situations where you're working for someone that's not ideal. Episode 164 for a bit of support and guidance for you. Also recommended episode 240, How to Influence Many Stakeholders. Andy Kaufman was my guest on that episode. He's the host of the People and Projects podcast. I was thinking about that in the context of Lisa's question, thinking about it from a project management standpoint. A number of things we went into detail in that conversation on episode 240 that you can do to Influence without authority. Maybe you're a project manager and uh, you're the one who's responsible for moving things forward, but you don't have formal authority. That's very much the spirit of that conversation on episode 240. Also recommended three episodes we mentioned briefly in our conversation. Susan Gerke's Aim Frame was featured on episode 263. We talked about how to benefit from conflict in those three key questions. If that was helpful, you may want to dive in on that. I'd also recommend Mamie Canfer Stewart's episode 358. How to lead meetings that get results. Some great meeting management practices from Mamie there. A good starting point for any of us wanting to influence better in our organizations. And then, of course, I mentioned the work of Ruth Gotian, How to Lead and Retain High Performers. Episode 567 for that. Bonnie mentioned the working genius model that Patrick Lencioni has introduced to all of us. Pat and I talked about it back on episode 610, how to help team members find the right work. A wonderful model. It's been so helpful to many. Bonnie's organization's using it right now. Many listeners have reached out to me to tell me the working genius model has been so useful to them. So episode 610, if you'd like to get an introduction there. And then finally, I mentioned Michael Bungay Stanier's work, How to Start Better with Peers, episode 635, to really lay the framework for that best possible relationship. If that's of interest to you, that conversation, a great starting point. And then, of course, his book as well. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. Many of you have told me that going through these episodes at the end of conversations is really helpful to have ways to go and find other resources. And you can do that yourself as well on the Coaching for Leaders website. If you set up your free membership, one of the many benefits inside the free membership is the episode library. If you just click on episodes, once you log in, you will find a list of uh, all the topics, several dozen topics. And then when you select one of those topics, you can find the episode or episodes that are most relevant to you right now. We talked about the topic of influence a bit in this conversation. We talked about difficult situations and we talked about team leadership. All of those are topic areas inside of the library. You can find many more conversations on all of those. And by the way, if you'd like a little bit more direction on past episodes and maybe even a framework to walk you through those step-by-step, you may want to consider Coaching for Leaders Plus. Coaching for Leaders Plus includes three key benefits. One of them is topic guides. The topic guides address a very specific topic or situation and then walk you through three or four past episodes that'll be helpful to you. But not only the episodes themselves, a video from me describing what parts of the episodes I think you should listen to, the thinkers behind it, the guests we've had on, more of my thinking on the particular topic that you're curious about, key points, 
reflection questions and a helpful PDF so you can utilize it and maybe even pass it along to others. It's one of the many benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus. For more details, just go over to coachingforleaders.plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Priest, formerly Sierra Smith. Congratulations, Sierra, on your wedding. Sierra has been supporting Bonnie and I for many years. Thank you, Sierra, for everything you do for us. Congratulations to you, and we love you. We are so excited for you. Many of us have heard we should lean into being more vulnerable as leaders. Next Monday, Jacob Morgan joins me for a conversation about what vulnerable leadership sounds like. Join me for that conversation with Jacob next week, and I hope you have a great week. Take care.